Welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. I'm Alex Pounds. And I'm Andrew Nesbitt. And together, we're going to explore the technical details of package management, the stories of the people behind projects, and the communities around them too. Today, we're joined by Mike McQuaid, the lead maintainer of Homebrew. Mike, welcome to The Manifest. Thanks very much for having me. So to get started, what is Homebrew? So Homebrew is a package manager for Macs. Primarily, we, we might talk more about other things later on. It's been around for, I guess, I think coming up to eight or nine years now. It's the main way of, I think for many people, many developers at least, installing developer tools like server daemons, various other command line, primarily applications on their Macs. And do you want to tell us a bit about your background, Mike? I always feel a bit boring talking about my background, considering it's the kind of fairly typical as a child, I liked computers. Then I did computer science at university. And then since then, I have worked on computering. That That's sort of my story. Went to Edinburgh University, graduated 10 years ago. I've had a variety of jobs. And Homebrew sort of changed my career path, I guess, a little bit. Uh, because before that, I was primarily kind of writing C and C++. Uh, started writing Ruby for Homebrew. And then kind of fell in love with it as a language. And have been kind of writing that professionally, mostly since... And nowadays I'm working at GitHub on their open source team. Oh, wow. So you you actually ended up teaching yourself Ruby to kind of be able to contribute to Homebrew? Yeah, pretty much. It's funny because in some ways, like this is what I always say to people with open source like stuff. Uh, I was a maintainer of Homebrew for probably maybe a year before I would say I even started teaching myself Ruby. And before that, it was more or less I would change stuff until it seemed like, I mean... I guess like all developers are familiar when you are familiar with one language and you were learning another one, like the the very, very early days, you're like, okay, I understand how programming works, but I, I don't really understand how this language works, but I can sort of try and fiddle with things and try and figure it out through mostly almost trial and error and a mental model of how things probably work. And um, so, yeah, so that, that was the way I, I kind of first wrote Ruby was to do that for Homebrew because Homebrew was written in Ruby and I hadn't really ever touched it before. And you mentioned that you fell in love with Ruby. What was it about Ruby that you fell in love with? I mean, obviously stuff like the performance is horrible uh, in Ruby compared to C++ that I was working with uh, previously. But I, I think it's just the kind of readability of the language, the way it feels like you can write very elegant solutions to a lot of problems in a way that is also very readable just i guess that sort of expressiveness but then at the same level all the kind of meta programming that you can do as well which is when obviously you start to veer a little bit away from readability but you can end up avoiding writing enormous quantities of boilerplate code through some of the kind of runtime introspection that ruby gives you which with my previous experience mostly with c and c plus plus even with uh cute which is the kind of toolkit I mainly worked with, which provides some sort of runtime introspection stuff. You couldn't do probably a tenth of the stuff you were able to do with Ruby. And that always kind of excited me and still excites me today. Would you say there was a, a lot of metaprogramming side of Homebrew? Um, you could argue that one of Homebrew's most successful features is the formula, which is effectively the description of how you can install a piece of software. And if you read the formula for something like wget it's pretty obvious what commands homebrew is running to build this software where it's downloading things from where it's putting things stuff like that and i think that like dsl is something that ruby made that process much easier because at the same time as being able to write the code in ruby 
and interpret this DSL with Ruby. Like you can do effectively everything you can do with Ruby within them. And that gives you a lot more power than building some new language from scratch that you use just for your description files. Before we get too far into the details of things like the formulas and exactly what gives Homebrew its strength, maybe we should like take a, a step back and have you tell us a little bit about why would somebody use Homebrew and also like what made Homebrew be created in the first place? Because MacPorts was a similar bit of software. Yeah, good question. Uh, so I, I've been trying for years to get my sort of pithy, what is Homebrew and why should I care down. The kind of almost one I have for less technical people is homebrew is effectively a package manager for your terminal uh that relies on people knowing what the terminal is but essentially anything that you might run in there anything that you might interact with primarily in the terminal be that a command line application say vim you wanted a newer version than the version that uh max come with say it's you know my sequel for some kind of web application that you're running or whatever or a newer version of ruby um those are things that you would all install with homebrew uh you would type brew install and then whatever the command is most of the time it's in there and it will install and work and be on your machine in a fairly easy fashion without a package manager of course you can manually download the source code for such things and build them yourselves and manually download the source code for any dependencies but this is pain and redundancy so most people do not want to do things that way in terms of mac ports uh, anecdotally homebrew appears to be used by more people nowadays than any other mac command line package manager um, previously that crown was held by mac ports and mac ports was something that i ended up using a fair amount personally i know max howell the original creator of homebrew uh, also did as well and basically i ended up about a year after he had created homebrew reaching the same sort of frustrations with mac ports and wanting to kind of work on something differently and um, so my initial dabblings with macports interestingly were i tried to effectively kind of build something a bit like homebrew on top of macports and um, so something which annoyed with me with macports is that they duplicated stuff which is already provided by the system so on Macs, you get libxml for example apple has their own version of that macports would build its own version because they didn't want to use apple's version this seemed redundant to me. My solution was I would just hack around with MacPorts so it thought libxml was installed when it actually wasn't, and that tricked it into using the system version. But this approach wasn't terribly sustainable long-term, so eventually then I stumbled upon Homebrew, read a little bit about it, and it appeared like it was doing things in the way that I thought things should be done. So what was the advantage of using the system-provided libraries over creating their own beyond the redundancy? Yeah, I mean, mainly it's just that's provided for you. Why build stuff and install stuff that you don't need to? Um, like the particularly back then when both MacPorts and Homebrew were primarily from source package managers, you weren't building things once on some server and distributing it to everyone. Everyone was building that individually on their machines. Something like Git, for example, had no dependencies in Homebrew, uh, but at the time, four or five in MacPorts, and that takes significantly longer to install the same software with MacPorts than it did to Homebrew. MacPorts was just installing more stuff that it didn't need to install, technically. They would argue that they keep better update with bug fix releases, security releases, etc. We argue if you're using a Mac anyway, if you don't trust Apple's security and bug triaging process, then you kind of have bigger problems at that point. I remember a lot of people switching from uh, MacPorts to Homebrew 
driven a lot by image magic, at least in the, the Ruby and Rails world, just waiting hours for Macports to install our magic uh, and image magic was incredibly painful when homebrew came along and kind of tried to reduce the amount of different things that get built every time you needed to update it was like a breath of fresh air yeah i mean i think that's what stuff like this tends to come down to for end users right is it's just this has saved me time and therefore word spreads that okay well this this operation that you have to do once a day once a week once a month whatever is you know three or four times faster with this software and then people move do you think it is that speed which was the the main driver of people adopting homebrew? Uh, I think it was a combination of two things. I think it partly the speed and in general like the feature set and various other things being perhaps slightly easier or improved. I, again, I'm not up to date enough on Macports to know how many of these things still apply today. I think the biggest thing Homebrew had going for it both then and now was it was a fairly early GitHub project and Max very smartly built it such that the GitHub kind of contribution workflow was how you made all updates to Homebrew effectively as a contributor. So right from the outset, like Max kind of decided that he was going to not try and single-handedly keep every single package up to date um, and instead kind of rely on a community of people to kind of keep things up to date and make bug fixes and stuff like that. I mean, obviously that happens with bigger, more established package managers, but the way they tend to handle things is, you know, say in Debian, you have a piece of software where that has a maintainer um, and that maintainer is the one who's responsible for keeping that software up to date, for merging bug fixes, for kind of deciding whether or not um, changes should be made to that software or not if some other people submit them. But in general, that's kind of that person's responsibility. Whereas in Homebrew, there was the kind of fairly radical shift taken there where it's no one's responsibility and therefore it's everyone's responsibility. So if you're using a piece of software and that and it doesn't ever get updated in Homebrew, well, you can submit a pull request to update it. And instead of almost trying to kind of find people who are willing to go through the arduous process of doing that, we've tried and still continue to try to make it easier and easier and easier for people to kind of submit updates, submit fixes, create new packages, and basically just improve that contribution workflow. And I think with the rise of homebrew and the rise of github being sort of somewhat side by side i think it's kind of helped that if you know how to submit a pull request to github you know how to update a package on homebrew uh, i think homebrew is probably the first of the package managers to use github like that as a database essentially so if we try and take off your github employee hat for a moment do you think that potentially creates a point of weakness for homebrew in kind of the long term I don't think so, because I think, I guess the thing that's more interesting than the GitHub side of things is the Git side of things. So if there was some sort of future where everyone had moved from GitHub to whatever, then I would imagine Homebrew's contribution workflow would still look very similar. The way most of these platforms tend to kind of handle user contributions now is quite similar. And I, I think the beauty of Git being a decentralized version control system is that it would actually be relatively easy for us to kind of move Homebrew to something else that kind of allowed this sort of contribution workflow. That would be possible for us to do that. But I guess almost the Homebrew ethos of why build your own libxml if your Mac provides it, it's kind of similar with, with this stuff as well. It's almost like why build your own network protocol for doing updates when you can 
sort of abuse Git to, to do the same thing, particularly when your contributors are going to have to use Git to contribute to the project anyway. So the way that people can add any package or update any package doesn't necessarily need any kind of involvement from the maintainer of the actual source code that that package is installing. Do you get many people kind of resistant to the fact that anyone can add and update someone else's packages? Some people certainly struggle with the mental model. You you do get people who, I guess, submit packages the first time and there's sometimes, you know, submitting a package that they maybe help maintain the, what we call the upstream in package manager world. I They write the original software and then they're being like, well, I'll also help write like Homebrew's formula for that to install that. There's the assumption that they kind of get a certain amount of veto power and they get to kind of dictate well, actually, no, I don't think this should be the case, or I think this should have this feature or whatever. And quite often, they're quite surprised to learn that that isn't the case, particularly when if someone else submits your software and then you turn around in a few years later and say, I don't think this software should be in Homebrew, please remove it. Well, then we tend to look then at our analytics. And if if we've got a thousand people installing that software a day, well, we're not going to pull the rug under them uh, from under them. So we try and resolve the issues they have but we're certainly not willing to just pull things because other people ask us to do so um i think that's fairly commonplace in in package managers to be honest but i think that sometimes presents some confusion i guess one thing i've been curious about with people getting essentially annoyed that you have packaged their software is that there is some software out there which is either it's available commercially but is also open source and you're, what you're paying for essentially is a pre-built binary. Like I know Crossover Office used to have that on Linux. And I know there are other things which are a little bit like donationware. There's a thing called Cyberduck, which I think you can compile it yourself for free or you can get a binary for pay. So I always presumed, I guess, that like software like that might get a bit annoyed if you made it so like you type one command and it installs. I mean, we've not really run into stuff like that and we do generally try to take those types of things on board um but again arguably like it's it's not our responsibility to enforce your preferences like we with open source licensing we have lots of ways of in a legal form that you can say well actually no you can't like build my software from source or whatever and i I think that's the thing that's tricky with this stuff is that you get you get more and more people who almost want all of the benefits of open source, but then to avoid some of the downsides, like, well, actually I want to have this project be open source, but then I want to be able to run a business on top of it without other people kind of almost to use this software without my help. And it's while I feel for those people from the sustainability perspective, at the same time, I I don't think it's homebrew's responsibility in those cases to say to our users who want to do that, we're not going to allow you to do that. And particularly because the way we've set up Homebrew nowadays, we have what we call TAPs, which are effectively third-party Homebrew repositories. So anyone can just make a Homebrew repository and put stuff in there if we refuse to package it or we remove it or they don't like the way we package it. Ultimately, even if we refuse to package some of this stuff, then other people would probably do so anyway. So apart from things like that, commercial sensitivity what kind of things would cause the homebrew project to refuse to package something we tend to be a little bit more conservative about some software we package in terms of we basically hate patches right so a a fairly common package manager thing is 
the upstream software does something for whatever particular reason and then the downstream package manager says well i don't like the way that's done so i'm going to write a small patch to modify that software so it works better with our package manager now this in general i think is not too much of a problem and it's not that big a deal in a small number of cases it becomes a massive problem and a massive deal so the example and i I hate to bring it up because again it's it's a mistake i could have easily made myself but in the debian project they had an issue with this where uh, open ssl was patched in such a way to basically avoid a valgrind warning about reading from uninitialized memory but read that reading from uninitialized memory turns out to be a source of entropy. So this is something where 99.9% of the time, any software doing this is doing the wrong thing. In OpenSSL's case, it was doing the right thing. As a result of patching out the source of entropy, effectively, they, they reduced the cryptographic effectiveness of OpenSSL on any Debian or Debian derivative system. So that includes Ubuntu. So that this was a while ago now. But that was something I remember reading at the time and thinking, well, firstly, it sucks to be that open source maintainer. I would really feel bad if I was them right now. But then on the flip side, like this is why patches are generally not a great idea. Because what what you're doing is you're saying, intentionally or not, I know better than the upstream software writer how their software should behave. So I'm going to write a patch which modifies their software that they've spent hundreds, thousands, whatever of hours writing uh, to make it behave in a slightly different way. And in general, I think they're dangerous. Uh, So that's an example of something homebrew might not patch. It's something which needs to require extensive patching to work inside of homebrew, on Macs, things like that. We're not really interested in like having those types of projects that can't be made really to work with homebrew without substantial modifications because ultimately those modifications should be going back to the original software. And if the original software is saying, nope, I, I have no interest in supporting Max or whatever, then there's no point almost fighting a losing battle there. So I noticed there's a Linux fork of Homebrew. Uh, have you had any involvement with that or has that been a hands-off kind of thing? Uh, it's been mostly a hands-off kind of thing. I t- I've tried to make things a little bit easier for them on occasion and I've done some bits and pieces on occasion to try and like do that porting but I've, I've not been involved much with there's almost two sides to it one side interests me and the other side doesn't so it's called linux brew and it's basically a way for people to be able to use homebrew on linux that that feels like a weird thing and most people are like why would you want to use homebrew on a system where where you have a package manager say if you're on debian apt-get which in my humble opinion, as a vastly superior package manager to Homebrew. Why would you want to use Homebrew on Linux? The argument for that is one of the neat side effects of Homebrew is that you can actually run Homebrew as a non-root unprivileged user and you can install Homebrew in any location. So this is useful for people who have access to Linux machines, but they do not have access to the package manager. So I believe scientific computing labs, this is relatively common where you are a scientist, and you have access to these Linux clusters, but you don't have access to install software on them with AppGet. So if you want to have a newer version of Vim on that machine or whatever, then that's when using Linux Brew could be kind of useful to you. As for this, the stuff that interests me versus the stuff that doesn't, so the actual day-to-day running of that package manager and like trying to make the homebrew formula work on Linux and stuff like that, like I find not interesting because I don't use Linux 
it, it's a great server operating system, but I don't use it on any of my desktops, for example. Uh, whereas the actual like making the homebrew package manager code itself like cross-platform, that's the bit I find a bit more interesting. So I kind of worked in the past to try and add like a generic kind of OS compatibility layer and abstract away some of the kind of Mac specific stuff and keep our test suite running on Linux and stuff like that. And that ends up being kind of useful for us as well because Mac CI, like Travis CI is great. It's really good that they provide free Mac CI, but it's significantly slower than the Linux CI. So having like those Linux CI builds is useful for getting like rapid feedback on like our test suite and stuff like that. And are there formulas that are shared between the two package managers or is it just the core code? This is when it gets to a slightly ideological point of contention in that all of the formulas are shared. uh, But if I was dictator of the universe, I would forbid such heresy uh, because I think that the kind of abstraction layer stuff I added to Homebrew, like Homebrew Brew, which is our kind of repository that's the actual package manager, it's basically was a layer to use kind of OO instead of having if Linux this, if Mac this, if Linux this, if Mac this, all over the place. The problem is in formula, that problem hasn't really been solved. So if you want to have a formula that works on Linux and Mac, you just end up having if Linux, if Mac, if Linux, if Mac, like all over the shop. My humble opinion would be that Linux should be maintaining their own separate formula rather than kind of forking from homebrews, but I believe currently they do fork from homebrews, which means that some of those formula work on Linux and some of them don't. If you were dictator of the universe, would you have any other kind of hallowed principles? Uh, No, my principles would be purely about package management and nothing else. Freedom for all men, women and animals, except for package management, in which there would be a dictatorial regime, I guess. Right. So what would the package management dictatorial regime, what would be the the principles? <laughs> so I guess, yeah, like the avoid patching upstream software when possible. Like a, a big dream of mine would be seeing all package managers sharing some sort of core, like dependency resolution logic and stuff like that. And some sort of underlying library to basically abstract away the stuff which every package manager re-implements from scratch in homebrew's case for example stuff like dependency resolution is the code there is hideous i hate working on it it makes me really sad and it, it makes me even sadder knowing that at gets code lies just a, a hair's breadth away and does all this stuff perfectly and has for like 25 years yeah you mentioned before actually that you have a lot of admiration for app get and you consider it to be a a, a better system than homebrew overall what is it about apt-get that you feel is so fantastic? So I used to be like a desktop Linux guy back in the day. I kind of started using it stereotypically when I was studying CS at uni and then kind of for a while afterwards uh, until the demands of my time became too great. That's not to say that Linux on the desktop is not good, but if you're a kind of natural tinkerer, fiddler type like me, then the amount of knobs you can twiddle just means that my system was continuously broken but i think AppGet is just it's just a really robust package manager it's used by many different linux distros at this point the ui is the only part of it i have less than perfect experiences with like it's really fast the dependency resolution is really smart it stores a lot of metadata it can do an awful lot of things and it just carves everything up in beautiful ways and i'm yet to really see anything in homebrew that I don't feel could almost be like AppGet 
behind the scenes. I, I kind of joke with some of the homebrew maintainers that if I had infinite time, what I would do is more or less get homebrew's command line interface and the kind of formula kind of package DSL and then just make that a wrapper on top of AppGet and use AppGet for everything else. Would that be feasible? Would it be easy or, I guess not easy, would it be feasible to graft AppGet on top of a macOS system? So there was uh, the package manager, Fink. I think it's still under active development, uh, but I don't know if it's used extensively nowadays. So that is using AppGet um, on Macs to do package management. So it, it's it's possible AppGet, I think, I think you can actually install AppGet within Homebrew, uh, bizarrely, in a sort of inception-y weird way again it comes back to the almost like the two sides of package management where you you have the actual implementation of the package manager itself then you have the kind of getting all the packages keeping them up to date dependency resolution where do you download them from where do you upload them to what do you see your ci look like and all that type of stuff um and that that's the side I, i just feel like app get handles really nicely if i had six months to a year i feel like i could probably re-implement homebrew in that way uh, and kind of almost do myself out of the job in a lot of ways but sadly i do not have that time just yet it seems to be a case that homebrew especially actually keeps that local git repository around and and uses it for syncing right as opposed to it being just a standalone piece of software you're essentially just plopping a the whole kind of development environment into a hidden folder somewhere and exposing that uh, via adding it to the path right yeah, so if you install Homebrew in the default location, uh, user local Homebrew, like the contents of that folder is exactly as what you would get if you do git clone github.com slash homebrew slash brew. Um, and then there's within the tap folder, which is again a subfolder of that Homebrew folder, you get like the Homebrew core repository, which is all our kind of package description files. So you work at GitHub. Is GitHub paying you to work on Homebrew full time? Is that your full time job? That is not my full-time job. Uh, my full-time job at GitHub is working on the kind of broad mission of making GitHub better for open source software, trying to make things better for maintainers in various ways. I am given some time by GitHub in my current role to work on Homebrew. Uh, so that's kind of like a sort of balance that I have set. But no, it's not something they pay me to work on full-time. But I guess you get a pretty good perspective on things being both a maintainer of a popular open source project and packaging many other popular open source projects to know what kind of things the various maintainers would find useful. Yeah, I think so. I think it's I think that's a nice thing is that as more and more open source has kind of moved onto GitHub and homebrew being so tied into GitHub in so many different ways, like yeah, you, you do get a real sense of kind of how all these different projects are working and what their workflow looks like and what their contribution patterns look like and how their maintainers interact with upstream projects and downstream projects and use libraries and all these type of things. So yeah, like I, I feel like it it does help you to kind of learn how to make GitHub better for open source, but also how to make homebrew better uh, on like a day-to-day basis, just seeing how this ecosystem is developing by itself. So you are Homebrew's lead maintainer, but you have a lot of help from other people, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, loads of help. Like, I mean, I could definitely couldn't run Homebrew by myself. Uh, so one of the main people recently, so we announced that we have kind of a lead maintainer now, effectively, for our formula repository as well, Homebrew Core. So that person is doing 
in terms of hours in the day, like way more than I am. Uh, their username on GitHub is I love ZFS. Um, and they they work unsurprisingly on the uh, ZFS on OSX project as well. I, I kind of joke often that I'm not entirely sure that they're not a bot that's just got very good at like natural language processing because the, the sheer amount they contribute to Homebrew is kind of staggering. So in terms of your day-to-day on Homebrew, what kind of takes up your time? How do you spend your time? So I'm mainly focusing now on like the package manager itself. So I, I keep an eye on what's happening with the the kind of formula updates and stuff like that. But that I mostly kind of skim through that stuff. Whereas what I, I'm trying to do kind of day-to-day is triaging new issues and PRs that come in on like Homebrew the package manager itself and then just have it working through like a backlog that I have sort of maintained in my email client and such things that are currently broken things that need improved things that I find annoying or I've been at conferences and heard multiple people kind of complain about homebrew working in a certain way so I try and just balance that sort of triage bug fixing review and feature development it tends to go in that order as well where feature development is almost like the the treat I get when my my homebrew folder and my email client is is empty and all the PRs have been reviewed and stuff like that. So in that day-to-day, what could be a nice surprise and what would be a, a horrible surprise? I mean, to me, still, like any PR that comes from someone and is like high quality off the bat is always a nice surprise. So when I wake up on my, my mocks and either when it's fixing a bug or to be honest, when it's a new feature that is something that we want. When someone has just done the research, read the docs, submit the PR, the PR is green, they followed all the style guidelines, like they, uh, all our tests pass and stuff like that. And then if there's any tiny little nits that need addressed, they are quick to respond to feedback. And they kind of, this sounds a little like self-entitled, but they defer to the authority of the maintainers and by that it's not that i think the maintainers know more than they do about programming or anything like that it's just that we probably do know more about homebrew than they do so it's arguments about why homebrew is a certain way are a little bit of a waste of time so i guess that that flips onto the other side where the stuff that is not pleasant to deal with is just people demanding endless rehashes of decisions that have been made and well documented in the past people resurrecting old issues saying i have this issue when they don't have the issue people submitting issues and stuff like that but they they don't read the issue template and they don't provide the information we need to help them and then we ask them for the information and they never reply these these are the types of the things that kind of tend to grind you down a little bit and i guess at the most extreme end when you have released something in homebrew which is particularly contentious and you start getting hate mail and people calling you a Nazi and all these type of things. I guess homebrew is kind of in a position where you might get slightly more people who are, I guess, not developers, less technically inclined because it's not like a programming package manager. It is for that user software. So as well as the developers who use it day to day, you get a whole bunch of users. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's definitely something that's changed over time is that like homebrew used to be very, very developer centric, whereas now I still feel like the majority of our users are probably people who are either currently working as or aspiring to work as developers at some point. But we do have more and more users who have, you know, they go to some site and they want to install some piece of software and then 
the software says, well, step one, install homebrew, step two, run, brew, install, blah. But this is literally the first time they've ever run the, the terminal on their Mac. And there's confusion around stuff like that. A, a really basic example that keeps coming up again and again and again, which is annoyingly not something we can even particularly work around. You know how like any password prompt on your Mac, like when you type in characters, it makes those like round blobs for each character you type in. But if you do a pseudo prompt in your terminal and it asks you for your password, when you type in characters, nothing. So it looks like it's just not reading from your keyboard at all if you've not used the terminal before. Uh, so this is a really common thing that our installer requires people to enter their password and they say, oh, but it won't accept my password. And what they mean by that is I type my password and nothing happens because they aren't familiar with terminal text entry and stuff like that. Um, and while we could add a little thing saying, we were about to prompt you for things. This will not show you your password. At that point, it feels like a little bit of a slippery slope where it's how much handholding do we provide for people who, if this is literally the first time they ever use the terminal, then the, the number of guardrails we have to work on there, it starts to outweigh, I think, the usefulness of them. You alluded to the whole analytics debacle that you ran into. Was that last year? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think last year. Did you want to touch on that slightly? Yeah. So uh, there's this repeated pattern in homebrew of like laziness that I think I continued and propagated, which is if someone else has done something for you, then why reduplicate their their work if it's not necessary? So laziness is a virtue in this case, right? Yes. Well, hopefully people may agree or disagree on that. I'll, I'll leave that to the, the audience to decide. So one of the things we do is if you download wget, for example, uh, and if you were building that from source, then that will download it from the main wget website. So as a consequence of that, we don't have any way of knowing how many people have downloaded wget. Now, some people would say, why do you even care about that? Mind your own business, whatever. It's like, well, that that's an argument and that's valid. But the problem is, is when I'm staring at say 100 open issues or I'm, I need to kind of refactor some stuff and I have a thousand packages to choose between, which do I prioritize highest? Which do I, you know, jump on and fix first? So for a while, we've kind of thought about like, what's the best way of doing that? And the more I've kind of worked in my professional career, these problems just don't really exist in the kind of professional software space because almost every piece of software has a reasonable amount of analytics nowadays where you kind of get some insights into what your users are doing. Not because, as some people might say, you want to spy on your users or sell their information or anything like that, but like literally because you, uh, so you can focus on making the stuff better that people use and either remove or just ignore the stuff that people aren't using. So for us, this culminated in uh, implementing a way of doing this and using Google Analytics. So when you install stuff in Homebrew, by default, it will send a anonymous notification to Google Analytics basically saying, I have requested an install of whatever, wget. Um, and then that has allowed us to prioritize and figure out what are people using, what software is working and broken for most people, what software is really, really popular, what software is never installed by anyone ever and can be removed if it breaks. Uh, so the problem was when we released this, there was a fair amount of backlash from people. The backlash appeared to revolve around a few different things. So one of them was that the analytics were opt out rather than opt in. My viewpoint on that was that from a 
pseudoscience, well, a semi-scientific perspective, if you're going to opt in, then you're not really looking at the analytics of people who use homebrew. You're looking at the analytics of the type of people who use homebrew and would opt into analytics, which is A, very small subset, and B, that small subset may well be biased towards certain ways of using homebrew. So I felt an opt-out was a better way of gathering better data from people. And the second, I think, main issue is that this was going to Google Analytics rather than some other platform. And, and that's something that I take on board. I mean, I, I tried to not put all my eggs in one basket as far as tech companies go. So as a result, I did like seriously spend a decent amount of time investigating other alternatives. But the problem is no one provides anywhere near the same sort of free tier that Google Analytics does. No one provides the same sort of level of performance and tooling and stuff like that. And it's just not doable for us to just set up our own server to kind of manage the the amount of traffic we, we get through things like this. I mean, if you include bots, Homebrew is getting like something around, I think a million like monthly active users. So at that point, it's pretty hard to just say, oh, well, we're going to spin up new infrastructure to manage all this for the analytics. Who pays for that? How does that get done? And I guess the third category is there's people who just don't like analytics full stop and think that, you know, all the big software makers are spying on them and now Homebrew is spying on them too. And we're going to sell all the information for money. I mean, they're entitled to think that, but I've personally never made a penny's worth of money directly from Homebrew. So while that might be a nice idea, it certainly wasn't one I've ever managed to come up with a good way of doing. As a result of this, uh, it kind of blew up on multiple occasions. Uh, as a result, you get a lot of issues and comments and personal emails saying that I'm working for the CIA or effectively a Nazi or Hitler or whatever and stuff like that. And it's kind of interesting with that stuff because I can actually laugh about most of that stuff uh, because more or less anyone who would say those things to me is, by my definition, at least uh, a blethering moron. And I, I just don't even entertain the viewpoints of people who jump immediately to kind of calling me names. But the disturbing thing about the whole incident is I had a really good conversation actually when this all kicked off, which helpfully occurred while I was mid-Atlantic on a uh, a flight from <laughs> from the UK to the US. And I was talking with some of my coworkers and particularly, in fact, my uh, my women coworkers said, see, this is why I never want to contribute to open source because this type of both entitlement and like massively negative behavior is considered almost like part of the ecosystem and like it sucks and we try and do what we can to get rid of it. But I, I don't think anyone has any expectations that we're ever going to eliminate this type of behavior, like completely eliminate it such that if you were to repeat this incident, you would not receive a single poisonous email or comment or whatever. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's, it's a lot of a, a much wider question, but I think it's a, a big thing that we as an open source community need to figure out. Like, how are we going to deal with the fact that there's a bunch of people who don't want to contribute to open source because they just don't want to get shouted at for stuff they work on in their free time. I guess even if it doesn't affect you directly and you're lucky enough to have that kind of strong constitution where the abuse doesn't get under your skin, it's still not behavior that you really want to see or encourage in the broader homebrew community. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and this is why we had relatively early on the code of conduct with stuff like this. And again, like I, I, I have no interest in allowing people freedom of speech on homebrew's issue tracker the internet is full of ways if you have a particular thing you want to say about a particular topic including homebrew 
the internet is full of ways of publishing your viewpoint. Uh, but I don't feel I, as a homebrew maintainer, should not have to wake up and read message after message of bile. Uh, so as a result, I'm fairly quick with stuff like this to say, right, if we get any more comments in this thread on this topic, you're just going to be banned immediately. Uh, and you're going to get blocked from homebrew and then you can never submit another issue here ever again. And that tends to have a relatively kind of positive effect. Um, and again, it, it's kind of useful nowadays with GitHub's. Uh, you, you can see from people's issues, comments and things whether people have contributed to your project before for example or not um and perhaps unsurprising fact is that the people who are the most vitriolic and abusive are the people who have almost no experience in open source have never contributed to your project have often never contributed to any open source project before these are not people you're going to convert to being great contributors and great maintainers so i just think it's it's often easier in many cases to just block these people and move on I've heard of people who have had success using bots to manage some of those kind of aspects of community, especially with anonymous users, potentially even kind of getting better reactions where a bot tells you your issue is not valid for whatever reason. Have you tried experimenting, kind of automating any parts of community interaction? Yeah, so we we've we try and do as much as possible with kind of bots and ci and scripts and stuff like that and again it's one of those ones where if i had infinite time the the level of bot driven automation on the project i would go to would be disgusting quite frankly um but one of the main insights i had fairly on with kind of experimenting with bots is people tend to respond much better to positivity from a human and negativity from a bot and by negativity i, I don't mean name calling or whatever i mean if your ci build fails or your your bot says, okay, Rubocop says that you've used three spaces here and you should have actually used two. If a human says those things, you tend to think, oh, what a pedant. Like, oh, can you not just merge it and ignore this one little change? Whereas most people seem to get if the CI bill goes red and if Rubocop says what to do, then that makes the process much better for everyone. Everyone knows what the expectations are there. And... Uh, in the community management side of things, we've sort of been experimenting with like stale, this thing called ProBot Stale, which my coworker Brandon Keepers wrote, that basically just does sort of similar things with issues where it basically says, right, if an issue's not got like an in-progress PR attached to it, if no one's commented on it for a while, I will assume eventually that it's stale and just close it. Because uh, with some of this stuff, at least the the squeaky wheels get the grease and Ultimately, if if one person has complained about a problem that no one can reproduce, we would love to be able to kind of fix it. But like, again, if we've not fixed that within like a couple of weeks, then chances are we're probably never going to fix that at all, like on purpose at least. So it, it's better that that issue just gets closed. And while bots have been starting to close those issues, people seem to be a little bit more understanding that again, like I'm not closing this issue because I hate you or whatever i'm closing this issue just this issue is being closed by a bot because it meets this particular pattern and stuff like that a, a final thing we've been experimenting with a bit more recently as well which i i'm increasingly excited by is uh using rubicop to do more of our kind of style checks and a, as a result of that allowing more homebrew specific style checks to be if you have an editor with rubicop integration then it will like pop up in your editor saying okay here's the kind of almost like violations in the homebrew file you're working on right now and i think that 
for me is even better in terms of feedback because then you're not having a command that people need to manually run you're not waiting for them to see a ci build or whatever but they can get that feedback immediately in editor uh, so that while they're developing stuff they can see okay here are what the problems are and here's what i need to fix before i even commit a file rather than it pushing it along uh, and I, I think that's something that would be cool to see more of the open source community experiment with as well is this idea of like how do you push those feedback loops to be as tight as possible and as close to the user as possible. So you mentioned reproducibility there, uh, not in the same context that I'm about to bring up, but one of my bugbears with a lot of different package managers is they don't have the ability to kind of reproduce the state that someone else's dependency tree exists on, say, your coworker's computer. And Homebrew has been ignorant of this problem in the way that most other system level package managers have. They won't generate a lock file or some kind of snapshot of how you successfully managed to install that dependency tree. Is there any plans to add the features to make that available in the future? Well, so again, harking to Debian, they've got, I think they're sort of pioneering the kind of reproducible builds where their end goal is for reproducible builds of not just dependency trees but like binary packages as well such that i can rebuild a binary package on my machine and that i will get a bit for bit identical result so i can basically verify that that package hasn't been tampered with this comes down to one of those things where if i had infinite time i would put a lot of it into stuff like this i think the closest thing we get for reproducibility right now is because our formula repo is all the versions are pinned at any given git revision so you could check out a particular git revision and then guarantee that all the dependencies are going to be exactly the same version there Uh, in terms of stuff like lock files we don't have that that's something that feels like it lives sort of a level above homebrew and i guess that's sort of segues nicely into in fact something that andrew made uh, which was like a, a project called broodler originally we now call it brew bundle which is basically a a sort of bundler for homebrew where you have like a brew file which can specify various like homebrew packages that should be installed and it's basically just a way of in a more declarative fashion saying okay rather than run brew install this brew install this brew install this you specify these are the, the the piece of software i want to be installed and get brew bundle now to install that software and basically verify that like everything is installed that you need to be installed for a given project say Uh, again with that that also doesn't have lock files for the log file stuff for that comes down to i guess a homebrew constraint in terms of the time and resources we have with homebrew that the problem is when you start to make dependencies more flexible so if you say this software it needs ruby 2.1 and up then if you get an issue filed where someone says, okay, this doesn't work on Ruby 2.16, and someone else says, well, it works on 2.17, and someone else says, well, it works on 2.15, you need to go digging to figure out why it doesn't work on 2.16. And in Homer's case, our solution to this problem is we say, well, we only ever support you installing our software with the latest version of the entire dependency tree. So if you want to have like an older version that you want to keep around for a long time, then you make a, a dedicated formula that manages that. So say MySQL, there's like a, a MySQL at 5.6 formula, which lets you stick around on that older version of MySQL. And that's a way around requiring the latest versions for everything when that may not match whatever your your server might be using. 
I get the feeling that a lot of people are kind of turning to using Docker as a on their development machines as kind of a a band-aid over the top of the situation of system level dependencies where they basically can wrap it all up and hide it in a Docker image, which then is system agnostic because Docker runs on Windows, Mac and Linux, but is actually just you're running Linux everywhere. Yeah, I, I'm definitely seeing a movement in that direction as well, like where more and more people are kind of wanting to do things this way. I, I mean, I, I haven't done a huge amount myself, so I'm speaking mostly from a position of ignorance, but my experience when I worked on projects that have done this or something similar in the past has been that the the development experience is never quite as nice as having a MySQL server that's just running on my actual machine and I can query the ports and run brute upgrade to get a newer version and things like that. This kind of comes down to as well another version, another thing which makes me a little bit tetchy in our industry, which is reproducibility is good and it's very important. The problem is there's a bunch of tools which assume that reproducibility is the most important thing and as a result assume that using lock files in the same versions every time are very important. And what I've seen the result of this in practice tends to be a lot of people install some new gem and then whatever the tooling they use locks it all to the same version. And then what happens is in the the nice future or present reality where everyone's doing what they should be doing, then they will monitor that gem. And then when the security update's released, they will then update the gem in their gem file and make sure the security updates are done and stuff like that. Whereas what tends to happen most of the time is that gem never gets updated ever again, unless another gem requires it to be updated. So they can have security vulnerabilities and no one ever notices and no one ever updates and no one ever cares. This is one of the reasons why I've resisted this stuff in Homebrew, but particularly, I mean, it's bad with a random Ruby gem. It's incredibly bad if you're dealing with something like MySQL and you get people who say, I want to be able to pin to version 5.6.21 or whatever, and the latest version is 5.6.27. Okay, there's bugs that have been fixed between those differences, but a lot of the time there's also security vulnerabilities that were fixed. And if you're going to run a... Uh, server which is going to be accessible over the network pinning intentionally to a version which has known security vulnerabilities is a very very bad idea in my opinion and as a package manager runner like i will rage against the dying of the light in trying to stop you from doing that and i appreciate that with you know production software that idealism gets trodden on in the favor of kind of pragmatism and actually being able to test on the same versions and things like that but i do generally feel that with the Docker world, you're seeing similar things like that happening where the people who are doing it properly are making sure that all their system dependencies are kept up to date. Whereas you do see a lot of Docker images being thrown around where people are not paying any attention to the security vulnerabilities that are being filed and fixed in in their images sometimes. And then as a result, they are pleasantly being happy with the uh, reproducibility of it all while ignoring the security consequences that come from that. Yeah, I agree. The The reproducibility aspect of Docker itself tends to actually be more like a freeze dry. We'll just put this in the freezer and we can always take it out and reproduce it. The problem is that as soon as you take it out of the freezer, two months later, you've now picked up a load of potential security vulnerabilities that like if you regenerate the Docker image from the Docker file, you get a completely different set of dependencies inside of that system so you haven't really got reproducibility at the 
kind of the top level, you've just generated an image that will continue to run anywhere, at least in the short term. Yeah, and I, I've not really seen, I, I think you'd need much smarter minds than I to figure out how you balance that kind of reproducibility versus security aspects. It, it's not really clear. I, I've seen various solutions and some of them just rely on, I guess, pragmatism where I, I've seen people who have, when you deploy a server, say, it just it effectively does a security uh, release update of all of the software on that system. And then if stuff starts blowing up, then you know that you need to, to fix that but again if you get to even kind of github scale let alone larger it, it doesn't really work to just deploy things and have them explode um so i don't know <laughs> because at the end of the day it's up to users what software they run and don't run so it's as long as you're providing as much information as you can on here be dragons then it's up to them to not get eaten so in terms of community and governance, like how can somebody get involved with Homebrew? Uh, I think generally the best way, I guess the, the automatic pedantry and style checks that I have described earlier on, if you push everything to maximum pedantry, there's basically issues all over the place with loads of our uh, formula. So that's generally a really good place to start is that you can run brew audit strict, which basically says maximum pedantry effectively and then like make a modification fix one of those little warnings and then submit that and then basically as you submit more and more stuff we will notice you more and more and set the bar a little bit higher and higher each time for that um, and then eventually you get asked to be a maintainer if you've made a significant number of non-trivial contributions over a reasonable period of time or in general if you are saving us more work than you're causing us. Where's the best place online for someone to find out more about Homebrew and getting involved in it? Uh, I think our two main places would be our website, which is brew.sh and our GitHub repository, which is linked from the website as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and joining us for this chat. It's been really interesting to learn more about Homebrew and the people who are behind it and some of the issues and the things that you've tried to balance uh, over the years if somebody wants to learn more about you personally where should they go for that uh probably my website mikemcquade.com or my twitter which is mike McQuaid, and you won't be able to spell it so i'm sure it will be written down somewhere yeah we'll drop that in the show notes thank you very much uh again to mike and that's everything for this episode from me and from andrew way nice thank you for listening goodbye <laughs>